Hello friends, how's it going? My name is Matt Barr and you're listening to the Looking Sideways Action Sports Podcast, the show where I try and cover the most fascinating stories in action sports and other related endeavours. Thanks for tuning into this episode, hope you enjoy it. I think you might do, because with my guest Liam Griffin, we're in classic, dare I say vintage, lifer territory. I mean, whenever I think of the concept of the lifer that I've been going on about on this show for years now, LG, as he's also known, pretty much pops into my head. He is, for me, the classic example of somebody relatively unsung who's accomplished two things. Carved out an absolutely ridiculous career for himself, inspired by his love of shredding and a desire to take risks and follow his own path. And secondly, had a supremely important role in steering the culture's development over the past two decades. If that isn't the quintessential life a resume, then I don't know what is. So to give you some context and be warned, long intro alert. I know this does some people's head in, but you know what? Forward it. I don't care. It's my show. I'll do what I want. Liam is a proper stalwart of the US snowboarding industry who's dedicated his life to running the best events in the game. Now, I first met Liam back in, I'm going to say 2004, maybe. At the time, I was doing some work with friend of the show, Phil Young, who was running the marketing for Motorola. Wow, how much does this date it? It was one of those classic gigs, basically, where a big outside company decides to absolutely fling money at action sports. And let me say, having known Phil since the early 90s, Nobody is more adept at handling said cash to ensure that A, the right people get paid and B, the culture benefits. Anyway, that's how I got involved. As part of this gig, we had to attend Burton's various open events. From memory, this was the European, the US, the Japanese, although I'm not sure it was called that, and the NZ Opens and put together a load of film and a blog content. We were also managing Motorola's team at the time, which is also quite funny thinking back. I was also wearing the journalist hat and writing comp reports for loads of websites and magazines as well. Anyway, it was as much of a laugh as it sounds, that job. And it was on these trips that I first met Liam Griffin, who was basically running all of Burton's events, as I understood it. I was instantly struck by how amazingly good at his job he was, how professional he was, and also what an absolute geek for snowboarding he was, and still is. I mean, you snap this man in half and you're going to find the words snowboarder running through him like a stick of rock anyway we became friends we stayed in touch and we would then encounter each other at some pretty random places around the world for example the last time i actually saw lg in person i believe was at some random hotel in china up near the mongolian border where we found ourselves working at the world snowboarding championships Over the years, I've watched as his career has gone from strength to strength, particularly once he left Burton, set up his own event agency, Super Good Thingmaker, and began working with Travis Rice on his event concepts. And now, this season, our paths have crossed once again after Liam and Travis invited me to take part in the selection committee for natural selection. Now, as part of that deal, I asked Travis to come on the show, which you've probably listened to already. And I also asked Liam to come on the show once the entire thing was finished to get his perspective. At the time of you listening to this and me putting this out, I think we're pretty much at the point when the AK edition has just aired. So we thought, me and Liam, that we would um, 
put this episode together so it came out at just that point. Think of this one as a compliment to the Travis episode and a look at the other side of that story when it comes to something like natural selection. In this case, how on earth do you put something like this together? What challenges do you face? And also, just how did Liam get to the position where he could help Travis Rice put together the most influential event series in snowboarding? Told you it was a long intro. Told you I'm not going to make any apologies. Just wait till you get to Housekeeping Corner at the end, which is when I'll be back. In the meantime, here's me and Liam Griffin, super good thing maker. Enjoy. So you've got the original. No, you've got the new one. I've got, I've got the, I've got the original. You've got the new one. Yeah, you had the, the three events, like the triple mountain, and then the circle represented sort of the the overall, the championship. And then the new one kind of modified a bit where it's, the, you know, still the three events, the three mountains, but the, the centerpiece is kind of... And the cool thing about this, as you saw with the trophies, is it works in three dimensions, right? It's a, it's a three-dimensional structure that you can actually print and... I guess uh, make out of steel or whatever they were made out of, and you you make a trophy out of it. So that was yeah, kind of yeah. a cool thing to have this thing that animates in two D, exists in three D, and can become a physical object. Whereas the, the piece you have is kind of this Escher esque thing, like you can't actually make that so much in real life. It, it exists in a design world. This is my favorite um, peppermint tea vessel. Of the, at this point since i stopped drinking beer all I, all I seem to do is drink endless gallons of peppermint tea i, dr- um, I drink gallons of coffee and i the, the, the yeti stuff is genuinely really high quality stuff yeah it's good it, blow, it blows my mind how warm my coffee stays for how long yeah so how, how are you man are you decompressing after the after this I think after this week, it will. I will start to decompress. It's been such a roller coaster of event and TV show and planning and event and TV show and planning and event and TV show and recapping. And I mean, we're just done with the show. It's just gone to air. You've just seen it. Uh, and now there'll be you know days of media and hype and. You know, trying to drive the numbers and get as many people to see it before it becomes old news as you can. And and then there'll be a breath, but then you kind of get back to, all right, like, what are the numbers? How do we do? How do we do it better? Because really, this is just the beginning, right? It's It's year one of not a brand new concept, but this thing as a tour doing three of them it's it's new it's different uh all three of them were different so there's a ton that we learn in the first year so yeah we'll get a bit of a break but really you got to get after it while it's fresh you know when did you and travis start talking about this like how long has the run-up been oh i mean it's funny the the ultra natural poster back here has got you know all the rider's signature and then that travis wrote at the bottom something about you know, thank you, endless commitment. This is just the beginning. And really that was it. Like that was 2013. And I think that summer, myself, Travis and Jeff Pensiero from Baldface were in Santa Monica pitching Red Bull on an event in Alaska, right? Um, 
you know, Jackson actually came later as a concept um, because the folks at Jackson wanted to revisit the OG natural selection concept. Um, but yeah, I mean, so what's that 2013 till now to bring sort of these three events to, to reality? It's been a minute, um, you know, and there was a lot of things in between there, right? Like, so we did Supernatural in 2012. We did Ultranatural in 2013. Travis went off and did the fourth phase, right? That was a four-year project. In the meantime, I was back doing other freelance projects, uh, did a couple of things with Red Bull, um, Red Bull Super Pipe or a Double Pipe. It was a really fun thing we did for two years. Really cool concept. Didn't quite work. I mean, I, there was a bunch of us that came from skateboarding that always wanted to build the animal chin ramp out of snow. And I think we... we realize that dream but it was just so difficult to translate the challenges that the riders were dealing with to the general public like i think if you were a core snowboarder you were into that event and that idea of doing something you know which is kind of like modified pipe i think danny davis did it first with peace park and we did this thing with double pipe and it's it's gone through multiple permutations since then but the idea of doing a different venue you know doesn't doesn't necessarily translate. And I could go on a whole tangent about, you know, the progression of snowboarding as it relates to venues and or formats. Like that's something. Fire, fire, fire away. You've listened to this. (laughs) Yeah. Tangents are welcome. Tangent. Well, let's, yeah, let's go on that tangent. I mean, I think let's, let's go back a bit. Let's go back to, I mean, half pipe right you probably saw that the do tour folks are doing this like retrospective on half pipe snowboarding and it was interesting i've only seen the first episode but it's interesting how that part of the sport progressed as the venues progressed as the pipes got better the snowboarding got better the tricks got better people could go higher and it was you know hand dug pipes 15 foot pipes 18 foot pipes 22 foot pipes and the, the 22 is like the biggest and most controversial jump, right? I remember it was Locks open, right? So Locks developed the original 22-foot machine with Zog. Um, Zog, the pipe cutter, they were based in Switzerland. The crew at Locks developed that machine with Zog. The first competition that I'm aware of that was done in a 22-foot pipe was at that time the Burton European Open. And... If you remember, Andy Finch won that event and it was like a pipe big enough for how big Andy Finch could go. And instantly it was like, okay, this is a, this is a game changer. And then Pat Melandowski and Ryan Neptune from Planet Snow used to do all the pipes at High Cascade, used to do all the U.S. Open pipes. They were the first ones to bring that machine to the U.S. And that following year, we did a 22-foot pipe at the U.S. Open. That was back when I was working for Burton. And yeah, what year is I, that then? Because you left what twenty? I left 10? twenty. No, twenty eleven was 2011. my last. My last uh, open at Stratton. It was the 29th because I remember the thirtieth anniversary. Like I went back for the thirtieth anniversary the next yeah. year as, as a spectator for the first time. And I I don't actually remember what year it was we first did the twenty two foot pipe. But what I do remember was that we had done we being Burton at the time had done a bunch of photo shoot pipes with the 22 foot machine, um, which were in all the Burton movies. So the Burton guys probably had at that time, 
more experience in the 22 foot pipe than anybody else. And I think that was the year Sean, was it Sean Mason and Danny, I think swept the podium, right? Because those dudes just just put more time in that pipe than anybody else. And a lot of the other riders were still adjusting. And there was a lot of grumbling at that time about the 22. Like, is this the next thing? Because some people could ride it and some people couldn't. So people who could were stoked on it. People who couldn't thought it was kind of whack. Um, but of course, now it's become this thing where the 22 foot pipe has essentially killed half pipe recreational snowboarding. Like it's not something you go do anymore. It's become more like, I, I might have to fact check myself on this, but there might be as many bobsled tracks now as there are 22 foot pipes, right? Like it's, it's a venue now. Yeah. It's not something you can just really rock up and, and hit. Unless no, and that's that's like I I the last actual like half pipe contest I did was over in China in 2016 for World Champs and that's the first place I saw a half pipe that wasn't connected to the ski resort. Like it was literally separated. Yeah, that was, weird. Like, I was, yeah, uh, like that, you, was that was weird. It was super weird, right? Yeah. Like it it was next to the Ariel's venue. It had its own half it had its own chairlift. Yeah. Um, and if you had a day ticket to the resort, you couldn't use that day ticket to go to the half pipe. I remember. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. was totally bizarre because I because I got there late that comp. I remember, and was obviously like all of us like so jet lagged, and I massively overslept the next day. So I I tried to get there. <laughs> you know, and it, it was it was a mission because I assumed you could ride there. So I just went up yeah. on the lift, and was like, what the fuck like yeah and then by the time i got there it's like all oh, right but like this is this is like a weird standalone sort of yeah, yeah it's, like, like it's like a freestyle park facility. sort of vibe wasn't it you know yeah yeah so it's interesting like you know the the modern half pipe has become so rare and specialized i don't know how many there are in north america at this point or globally but i i think that bobsleigh analogy where it's like you know you can't if you want to be a olympic bobsledder you got to seek out like this spot that has one if you want to be yeah. an olympic halfpipe rider at this point you kind of have to seek out these things or come up through a resort program where they have one you know even places like like i don't know that stratton or, or sms right stratton mountain school that produced over the years some of the best athletes in, in american snowboarding i don't think stratton has a proper 22 foot pipe anymore um so yeah, it's unfortunate that that you know the the progression of that type of venue has led to this like real specialization. Whereas, you know, slope style, it was really the airbags that did it. It wasn't it wasn't the the terrain that did it for slope style. It was the addition of airbags um, that really allowed people to learn new tricks. And and in other ways, you know, it was big air that pushed slope style. Uh, I would say women's big air most specifically has done so much to pr push the progression of women's slope style because for years there were no women's big air events. Um, and I think the minute they got that opportunity that combined with the airbag training, it just kind of went, went Richter, you know? So what's your view on like how that, I mean, I'm not going to like, obviously it affects progression in, in a, in a particular physical way let's put it but culturally what's your view on like how that's affected progression and well and the culture 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's there's a couple things that drive progression in the sport of snowboarding over the years. You can change the venues, which we kind of talked about. Like, you can change the format, right? You can either allow progression by allowing the riders to be creative with their riding, like through a jam format. I think some of the best halfpipe riding in the early 2000s at the US Open that I remember was when we were doing the jam format. That's when Danny Cast was winning everything because, yeah. because you he could just be creative. He could drop in every time and do a completely different run. There was no pressure and it was fast laps and it was a true jam, not like this kind of X Games jam that they're running now, which is not really a, a true jam in the sense that like, cause they have a start list. Yeah. In a jam, you get to the top, you strap in, you drop, you drop in. Yeah. Um, you know, so that's progression through the venue, progression through the format, um, or there's or there's progression through changing the venue, right? Like double pipe is is a, a way of almost regressing the riding by making the venue more challenging, or any of the yeah. you know any of the modified pipes, um, or with natural selection. Like here's a completely different venue. You you can't do double corks here. It's not it's not really set up for that there's no practice it's all natural terrain so you know all these different elements of snowboarding progression have led us to this to this place why we're having this conversation because you know myself and travis and a whole crew of people and i think the entire snowboard industry like you know talking to riders talking to different people everybody wanted some alternative to i guess the current status quo and this might be it it might not uh, time will tell whether this thing can make it through multiple seasons and become like its own standalone WSS WSL style, you know, like pro tour. Um, but it's, it's an alternative that exists now that hasn't before. Um, and I think it's opening doors for some people who might not otherwise have those doors to open. Yeah. That's one of the most interesting things, isn't it? And almost like, unforeseen. well, I don't know if it's unforeseen for you, but obviously Zoe is the obvious example of that. Um, but equally a lot of those guys, yeah, it's suddenly, it's suddenly it's a different, it's a different sort of path you can take, isn't it? You know, as opposed to like the set, you know, cause it was becoming quite stratified snowboarding and like career paths and progression, wasn't it really in, in, in some ways, you know, it was like quite, some people could book that trend and could, could carve out a, a unique role for themselves or a unique professional career for themselves. But by and large, there was, there's, there's always been like quite set routes to, to, to get you to the position of like professional snowboarder. And I think what's one of the really interesting themes about natural selection is already, even at this early stage, you can see how it's suddenly like offering alternatives to that. Was that, I mean, that's an interesting question actually. Was that something that you foresaw or has that taken you by surprise? No, that was definitely something that, you know, I, I draw some personal parallels to that, right? Like for the riders, they come up, they cut their teeth doing halfpipe, slopestyle, big air yeah. events. They, they learn how it works. They get their sponsors. They make a name for themselves. And at a certain point, you want to take that skill set and apply it to something different. I think Sage Kotzenberg is probably the, the penultimate example of that, where he wins an Olympic medal and then just walks away from it all and goes and makes some really incredible progressive snowboard films. Um, but you see that happening with the Ben Fergs, you know, the Sages, um, 
McMorris right now, just like tiptoeing back and forth between those two worlds with, with ease. Um, you know, Mickle, obviously he, he was on that Olympic track and then consciously just, just said, no, I don't want to be on the Norwegian Olympic team. And then went, went and filmed for however long he's been on that journey. And, and now that experience has paid off, but, but yeah, for, for me, I, I wanted that same challenge, right? At a certain point, you've, you've done all the half pipe contests, you've done all the big airs, you've, you've done rail jams and slope styles and all those things. And it's like, well, what are you going to do? You, it's, it's all kind of linear, right? It's N plus one, the, the tricks yeah. that are, the, the tricks that are getting done at this event, the next event will be that trick plus one, like yeah. add a flip, add a spin. And it just, you know, it's 900, it's 1080, it's 1260, it's four, you know, it, it just keeps you can going. Like, you can always like plot it, you know, like a timeline. Yeah, exactly. You're right. Um, you know, like all, all four nines was a, was a huge thing, right? Yeah. Like David Benedek in his, in his video part, minus the one trick that got left in the editing floor. And then, you know, he did that at the, at the veil session. Like that was incredible. But, you know, I think in semis he did all four nines and then, three nines and a 12 in finals and then Sean doing all four tens at, at the veil session again, like, but now it's just gotten to a point where you need a calculator to figure it all out. And it's not really inspirational or aspirational anymore. I mean, I, I'm inspired by the talent that these people, the riders have to go and do those things. I don't want to discount that in any way, but you know, for the average viewer at home, it's not easy to understand and it yeah, doesn't it's the conundrum of snowboard progression isn't it like if you try to make it a spectacle it's like it's the classic inbuilt issue with it like how do you make it relatable you know like other than yeah. like that's really hard and here's how hard it is and like you say if you're a snowboard geek or you're like somebody that's passionate about the sport knows the sport like you know that but even then like you say it becomes increasingly difficult to actually comprehend and relate to and get your head around and you you are left with like the physical admiration of the feet as a, as an athletic feat, but in terms of like an act of pure snowboarding that you can relate to in the same way that you could relate to for you know some of the other examples that you mentioned or some of the classic instances from the history of snowboarding, um, it that that became more difficult as progression increased, didn't it? Which is yeah, for sure. Which I, is the I conundrum think... at the heart of it, isn't it? Yeah, and. And something we definitely saw this year with natural selection was people coming out of the woodwork, friends of mine, industry and not, who were like, I just watched this event and it made me want to go snowboarding because it looked fun. It looked like somewhere I might want to go or something I might want to do. You know, like Jackson looked incredible. BC, like you could go there. You could book a trip. You could go go on the Baldface website and book a day trip to Valhalla for next winter. But seriously, do it um alaska maybe maybe not maybe at some point in the future you book your trip to alaska but these are places that snowboarders for decades have gone and, and want to go right like you you start your season in north america anyway you start your season in the rockies you work your way up to bc you end your season in alaska that's your your classic video part right your little three-part mini mini series in your in your video part at the end of the year and you probably have a Japan segment in there or a Europe segment, which 
of course, like those are places we want to go in the future with, with these events because they make sense for snowboarding. But I think what so many people see as competitive snowboarding on TV is happening in locations where the location doesn't doesn't really matter. Like yeah. as long as they can make a shitload of artificial snow and shape it into these sort of preset half pipe slope style, big air sizes and shapes that are super dialed, which allows people to do that next trick, right? Like that's how good the venues are cannot be understated right now, um, which is why you see people able to do the tricks that they can do because it is very consistent from one to the next to the next. Um, but the downside of that is that the locations become anonymous, right? Like the half pipe at X Games is the same as the half pipe at Locks, is the ha- same with the ha- as the half pipe at the Olympics, is the same as, you know, and like the big airs are all the same. And nobody aspires to seek out those locations. And that travel piece is something that's totally missing. Because I know, like, growing up watching snowboard videos, you just wanted to go to these places. It was a bucket list, right? Like, you want to go to Japan. You want to go to Europe. You want to ride in the Alps. Key part of the culture. Key part of the appeal. Like, you know. The the search. Yeah. And you're right. That's interesting. I've not really considered that as, as yet another reason why just to sort of link it to the wider thread that this competitive, I'm going to use the phrase cul-de-sac, which is probably a bit harsh, but you know, like the, like the effects that it has on, on the culture generally, because these things are all incremental, aren't they? All these themes that you kind of mention in progression, like the travel aspect that you've just mentioned, these are all like in, incremental repercussions of the path that it's been on, aren't they? And you know, the effect of that, like you say, is, is particular and so and and has been considered not that healthy recently right which is which is interesting yeah i I think if you worked in the industry long enough you look at well just let's just take the olympics for example like did the olympics have a positive impact on snowboarding honestly really hard to say right Did, (laughs) did, did did brands sell more product some brands maybe um did it get more people snowboarding? Did it change the total numbers of skiers versus snowboarders or the total number of skier visits? Honestly, no idea, right? Um, you know, has it has it negatively impacted the sport? Again, hard to say. Like what what people see on TV as snowboarding when they tune in, does that make them wa- want to go to the mountain, buy a day ticket, buy a new setup? Some people maybe, but I I feel like show the people something that looks fun that shows a culture that they want to be part of that where the culture is part of it right it's not just sport yeah exactly Um, because there's tons of sports right like people are into baseball football soccer or football bobsleigh bobsleigh and and there are fan there are people who are rabid fans of those sports who don't even participate in them, right? Well, that's so, what I was going to say. Like, you know, a lot of those ones that you've mentioned, there's a, it's it's not that part. It doesn't have to be participatory to be into those sports, does it? And that's that that that's almost like the diverging path that snowboarding has had because it was always about participation. But the more it becomes sport-like, especially at that competitive end of the culture, the more it just becomes something you watch. And I think something is being lost from that personally. Whatever, that's just my subjective opinion. So yeah, like that that that's the 
that's the different that's that's where that's taking the culture isn't it so this Travis, when we chatted, used the word nudge. I think I used the word course correction. You know, like this, this is important for me because I think, and I think for a lot of people who are invested in the culture, because you want to see those parts of the culture represented. You want to see that, you know, those attendant parts that make it unique, that make it not like bobsleigh. Sorry if there's anyone listening that's a bobslayer, but you get the point. It's like those things, I think, much as I sound like an old fart, were, I think, being a bit sidelined by that, you know, by the Olympic zization, if you can say that, such a mangled phrase of, of the, of the culture. Yeah. And I think, I think the other thing that will continue to be a challenge for traditional competitive snowboarding is because it's progressing so quickly, the shelf life of any given competitor is really shrinking right like the the number of seasons that you get at the top of your career as a competitor it's it's a really narrow window to make a name for yourself and those those names are fewer and more far between because of how compressed that window is where you're at the peak level of your progression and i think you're missing the opportunity to build characters and build stories around those characters right i I think if you look at the lineup of competitors for natural selection, you've got a pretty broad span of career lengths and age ranges. You know, it it really levels the playing field, I think, a lot because you've got people coming, like Zoe is a perfect example, coming from a, a more freestyle background. She's also got a ton of experience riding in New Zealand and real snow. So she's, you know, kind of antithesis to how Anna Gasser did, you know, most progressive women's freestyle rider in the world, Anna Gasser, never been done before tricks, really showed up and struggled. Zoe, also really progressive with more of a free ride background, showed up and dominated in Jackson, right? And then on the men's side, you've got competitors like McMorris who have it all, who can apply that, you know, eye of the tiger contest mentality, but also has now spent enough time in the backcountry that he can land on his snowboard, which is a you know, a complete shift from where he was for Supernatural when he got the wild card and showed up and just fell down the course repeatedly. Um, you know, and, and even like Terrier, Terrier, I think, had some personal stuff this, this winter that didn't allow him to travel, but he could have shown up and done well, right? Um, so you'd have this this spectrum of, you know, yeah. McMorris to Hawken, Rice, Giggy, you know, people who are known personalities in the space who are still super relevant, but they're not going to show up at the Olympics or the X game. So what is there for them? Well, there's this now, um, which we hope, you know, allows this because as you know, from being on the selection committee, there's easily another, you know, we had 16 men and eight women at Jackson for the first stop. There's easily another 16 men and another eight women that, could, could be in there next year or weren't in there this year because there's just not enough spots. Um, you know, because we're dealing with limited amounts of terrain, limited time frame, you can either have more people get less runs or less people get more runs. Um, cause it's pout. You can't just groom it, you know, and have more people ride it the next day. Yeah. So with, with taking all this like kind of, you know, wider conversation that we're having, 
I got two questions about natural selection. How much of this was a consideration prior? And, I, and I'm guessing the answer is it was a huge consideration. You know, the, the, all these cultural elements, all the all the things that you've referred to, the the storytelling, the culture, the travel, like all these things, obviously constitute the culture of snowboarding. Which clearly, from what you've been saying, you you would you felt was la- was being lost or lacking, like you know, clumsily phrased, but you know what I mean. Like, so yep. first part of the question, like how how conscious of that were you? And then secondly, like how what's your what's your take on what you've achieved in that context with this first series of natural selection? Yeah, I would say for me personally, I was super conscious of all that, you know. Um, and it would depend on who who we were talking to, right? Like you're you're pitching this to folks at a resort. They generally get it, right? They're they're in the same boat. They're trying to figure out what the future of their resort business looks like. They understand that there's potentially a need for a bit of a shift in how they market themselves as a destination and what the world thinks about them. You know, Jackson, they've got some of the best free riding in the world. Does everybody know about it? Maybe not. Are some people going to book tri- trips to go there next year? I hope so. I mean, it's it's an incredible mountain, really cool terrain. Culturally, I think they get it. They've supported this thing since, you know, since day one. They were the original host for the original natural selection back in 2008. It, Jeff up at Baldface, huge supporter of this thing, even through all the time between then and now, right? Between 2012 and 2013 with Super and Ultra. And then... The folks up at TML, again, huge supporters. So if we're pitching industry sponsors, yeah, like they all get it, right? You're talking to an Oakley or a Vans or a Burton or the folks at Backcountry, you know, Yeti, they get like, I don't want to turn this into a sponsor plug, but there are brands who inherently get it um, and want to support this because they see the need for it. And I think now that includes almost all the brands. There are definitely folks who we talked to early in the, or in early stages of inception for the tour who didn't get it. And a lot of those folks reached out after the Jackson event and went, Oh, (laughs) now we get it. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, yeah, that, so that's what you guys have been talking about this whole time. Um, and you know, I, th- I think Travis drives a lot of that, like the, you know, the, the geology pieces and the hydrology pieces and talking about not just where we are, but why we're there and the history of why we're there and to trying to educate people a little bit about what's going on in the world and not just like, yeah, we're stoked, you know, like this, the generic, you know, sports interview at the end of any any winning game, you know, we're like, yeah, we've, we, our team sports harder than this team. And next time we're going to play <laughs> sports, you know, like, yeah, like yeah, let's yeah. just this is elevated a little bit up from there, you know, and, and try and talk a bit more about where we are and what we're doing and why we love it and why it's special. Um, and I guess the, your, the second part of your question is how do we, how do I think we did? Um, I mean, there's, there's room for improvement across the board. This was an incredibly challenging year for multiple reasons. You know, we're, we're a startup, we're a small company. Um, it's the first time we've done this, although we've got like some really good beta tests that we've done in the past with previous events. Um, you know, and, and 
there was a pandemic you may have noticed uh, <laughs> i kind of yeah, forgot that, that part because it's because <laughs> it's because it's over now right um are you yeah. in lockdown or are you how's how's the uk right now uh the uk is opening up everyone's starting to ignore it let's just put it yeah. that way yeah yeah so but that that provided its own set of challenges from a logistics perspective a cost perspective and just like availability of funds like you know, a, a year ago, right now, we were really hard into planning everything, but but at the same time, everything was shut down. So you know, brands hit pause on all spending. People were hoarding cash. You know, that definitely had a an overall negative impact on just free available cash flow industry wide. But we managed somehow to push through it all um, with with adjustments. You know, like. There was at one point a plan to do all three events live or have all three events with full field. You know, obviously there was there was plans on plans on backup plans stacked on top of more backup plans for all three stops. You know, Jackson was the one that I would say was executed most true to the original plan. Right. 16 men, eight women live head to heads, multiple days of competition like that's. That's where we want to be with all three of these events, getting all three of them to that level in year one. No way that was going to happen, especially with Canada, with all the COVID restrictions and the border closure. Like that one had the most plans of any of them um, and probably ended up being the furthest down the stack in terms of right. where, you know, it was like, OK, we'll do an event at Baldface proper on the original course at Scary Cherry. We might not be able to do it live, but we can still do it. And then it's like, yeah. oh no, the lodge is closed. Baldface proper is is not even operating this season. We need to go to a new tenure. Oh wait, now it's got to be all Canadians. You know, there, there's no way we can get international riders in there. So all those little pivots, you know, we had them all laid out, and it was just you know flipping to that next page in the binder. Like, all right, cool. Here's the plan, and we, you know, I think we executed. Um, what did you think of the AK show, by the way? I thought it was great. I literally just watched it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, we're talking the day before it goes out because we're going to put this out on the day it comes out. Yeah, I thought it was. I thought it was great. I thought. I mean, I've got a question to ask you about the kind of technical ambition of the whole series, and particularly what you've achieved in AK, because you know the shots. A big part of this is 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 the perspective that you're giving people on this this level of snowboarding, like as in like literally with the drone shots and the production. Mm-hmm. And you know, I've obviously been watching snowboarding for thirty years now, and there's that that's a new take on AK for me, just because of what you've produced and the, and the access, the visual access that you're giving people. So I got a question on that, but yeah, I thought it was brilliant. I'm really glad Mickle won, um, personally, because I think his approach was for me the most progressive really um and i thought robin was was and and zoe was a great final like probably not the outcome i was expecting to be honest i'm mm-hmm. not going to say what the outcome is um in case people haven't watched it uh but i thought what i really like about the whole thing is and I'm, ak as well um is is how it's making me and I think a lot of people from speaking about this look at competitive snowboarding with fresh eyes because it isn't, you know, the crazy spins and the crazy like 
trick level that we're talking about you know people are like the, my favorite thing in a, in the ak thing i actually texted you is mickle's backside five yeah i mean that is mental and yep. like and the drone shot of that like actually really i was a bit like jesus you know like when i when i saw the angle on that and then obviously he lands it and like so for me but like it, no other contest you see in a backside five and it's giving you that reaction you know it's 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 and you're appreciating, you know, it's it's this relatability thing again. It's this, it's it's seeing like beautiful technical snowboarding that is as hard as anything that anyone's going to do, but in an, in a way that is much more relatable and to be honest, much more enjoyable. I think for me, which is which is the sort of crucial thing. So, and I thought that was a theme through the whole series, but particularly in in AK, you know, like quite an obvious thing to say but you could see him getting tired as well yeah. like late, later runs you know like that that is relatable you know there's a couple of almost like going over on the front foot at points because the snow's like you know pretty, pretty variable pretty it? snow to keep you honest at points let's put it that way in it you know so yeah. like and even those things i think are brilliant because everyone can relate to that and everyone and that it's a new take on the reality of this stuff i mean me and me and travis spoke about this quite a lot after jackson but that i i got a lot out of that personally and i think you know like the the people that you mentioned that have been messaging you and and from what i've heard i think that's one of the main things this has had such a, an impact for people because it is like a correction it is a bit like yeah you know like Mickle, not to harp on about Mickle, but like, or even I say what Robin's Cliff, you know, yeah. like, like that, that is, that's amazing. And like, you know, again, mm -hmm. it's just, it's just, and, a, and her, it's just, it's just her, a straighter off a cliff, you know what I mean? But like, it is like, holy shit, you know, like it's, so I, I, I loved it. You know, I thought for me, I, and, and final thing I'll say about it, I just love the different approaches of all the riders as well. And for me, that's why I was actually quite stoked on Mickle. Like one of the things I really liked about Mickle's approach, to this whole thing, is that he didn't he didn't try and treat it like slope style. He didn't try and get a run and just nail the run. Like you know, like he was always looking for different lines. He's always seemed to be adapting his lines for what he was doing on that line. If that makes sense, even mm -hmm. even in the final, he's got two very different runs with a couple of like very obviously incredibly difficult tricks that he's almost seems like he's thrown off the cuff. You know what I mean? So yeah. that for me is like my favorite approach, but then equally I can completely respect the approach of someone like Mark, who is almost treating it like a massive slope style course and like, you know, kind of basically just going, yeah, I'm going to do that and nailing it as he did in Jackson, mm -hmm. you know? So I, so those nuances, I think once, you get two, three years in and people understand the riders understand what's expected. They get used to the judging. The judges get used to it. I'm really, I'm really excited to see how it develops because I think, you know, if we bring it back to this conversation about the, the influence that competitive structures and formats have on progression and, you know, as you very, you know, eloquently and clearly explained how pipe has, has led led it down a particular path you know I, I actually just can't wait to see what effect on progression this has in that context once we get well, a few years down the line and i think for us right now the only piece of it that is a bit contrived 
is the head-to-head, right? And that was very intentional for a couple of reasons. I think if you look at a traditional contest format like this, it'll it'll either be a best of three, right? Where you take however many riders you have, they all get three runs down the course. You rank them and score them for every single run. And you've got to keep track of all the run scores and figure out who did the best run that day or the best three runs. And if you did that, you might see a different overall ranking, right? Like if you did that with just the runs from Jackson, for example, the top eight who advanced would not have been the top eight if you just did it based on scores, right? Because there was those head-to-head matchups. But what the head-to-head does, which I think is interesting, and I think we'll stick with it for a while until it either gets perfected and it works or it blows up and it doesn't, is it breaks it into these little digestible chunks that you can watch and understand because you've really only got to think about two people at any given point instead of 16 people. Yeah, exactly. Um, you got to tell you got to tell a story, like like you said earlier. You've got to, it, like yeah, head to head for right or wrong, is very easy to understand. You know, like it's it, it is like if you try to sell it to an audience, everyone gets it's, that. It's Thunderdome. Two men enter, one man leaves. Like yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's timeless. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think there's the work that needs to be done on the head to head is not on the the brackets themselves it's on how you seed it right like there's no global ranking of here are the top 16 riders in the world and you seed 1v16 2v50 like that's traditionally how you would seed the brackets you know how we did it in jackson with the randomizer at the bar it wasn't even that we were seeding the brackets we were drawing the riders i don't know that people even got this right we did like a, maybe a little social blurb on it but I, I, I clocked it, but I think it was quite, quite hidden. Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't just that you drew a name from the hat and that went into the number one seed. And then you drew another name from the hat and that went into the number two seed. It was, we were, and we were digitally drawing those names from the hat. We built this randomizer and you'd put the rider on the spot and they, they'd have to pick not just where they were dropping, but who they were dropping against if they were in the later half of the of the draw, right? So it's like, well, you don't want to go first, really, because you don't want to guinea pig the thing and, and try and figure out what the speed is for this jump and put down the first track. You don't want to go last, but you probably want to be in like third or fourth. But then as far as bracket strategy goes, you want to have the hammer, right? So the even numbered spots are the ones you really want. You want to go second, fourth, sixth, eighth, and so on. Um, Because if you're in a head-to-head, you want the other person to drop first. You want to see what they do and then strategically follow on their run with a a better run. Like you're armed with that knowledge. At least least in in Jackson you are because we've got a full athlete's tent and a video feed and a live program. Yeah, it's, it's like the best lane. It's, it's the best lane, isn't it, in the sprint, you know, or whatever. Like, there, yeah, there, you, there, you, you can have advantages by by format, yeah, for sure. Right, but if you look, you know, again, if if there was one thing I would point out about the Jackson event, which is just a, a side effect of that head to head, is that you had some people get knocked out in the first round, who in a traditional three run format might have been on the podium. Right, Rosman versus Rice is yeah. a great one. Robin versus Zoe 
right? Like Zoe knocked Robin out in the first round. Boom, she's gone. Yeah, she gets- it was quite or like Elias or you know or or Vernie like had badges just you know out bang straight away. It, yep. was, it was quite pitiless, wasn't it? Yeah, um, and I think that's there's something really interesting to that. But how, I think it's everyone you're always going to lose half the field in the first round. The question yeah. is, how do you seed it so that that process is fair? And I think random with this draw was really neat because it set up some rivalries that maybe didn't exist, right? Like when you had to pick, like the Rice versus Rosman was was my favorite pick because nobody wanted that spot. Like Travis had drawn fairly early and picked a bracket and no one's, no one's going in. It was like the Rice bracket was open the first drop was open and maybe like the last bracket was still open. And Rosman was like, well, I don't want to go first and I don't want to go last. So I'm going to go against rice. You know, and it's like, all right, that's yeah, no, you're right. There was, there was some brilliant little subplots, weren't there? Like with with the way, the way it panned out. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I guess to get back to my point there, it was with this head to head in the future, like drawing more upon results and figuring out how to set up that first round bracket so that the the logical people are eliminated, not the favorites. Um, yeah. Although there's always going to be favorites. Yeah. I thought that was the unpredictability really helped make it though. I, I, I liked it. I like the fact that there was a lot of on paper matchups that didn't go as you might, might expect, which I think was a really, a really good thing. And, 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 and again, it, it, it underlined how challenging it actually is, you know, like, and, and how many variables there are that, you know, if, if you're not lapping the same park for, for days, it's different. It's, it could be different one line to the next, like line choice obviously matters. I think that was the most clear in Alaska. Because, you know, in Jackson, the whole thing was pretty much blower left to right on day one. And then for finals, it was mostly blower left to right on day two. So your line choice there was really about like what features you were lining up. There were some features that were bigger and more risky than others, but it wasn't like in Alaska where it's like, all right, this spine has a closeout exit on the left. And if you blow it here, you're going to fall off the planet. Versus this this spine has clean runouts on both sides, and if you blow it at some point, you can always ride out left to right, and it'll be fine. You know, like the, that that line choice mattered obviously the most in Alaska. It mattered a lot in BC. That was one cool thing about the BC event was just you know, that venue was massive. Like it was this huge ball with this big long convoluted ridge line. I think one of the most challenging things for our crew there was just, you know, figuring out how to shoot it, um, you know, because it wasn't, wasn't like we went and picked that venue. It was like, all right, here's where we can get, this is what, where the roads are. This is the piece of terrain that's open because the the Valhalla tenure is huge, but they weren't operating fully this season. So there's only a, a limited road network that we could access to get into that piece of terrain. Um, but it was really cool because obviously folks who had more experience with riding lines and picking terrain like Rosman and and Dustin Craven and Sollers, like those guys did super well. Um, and then other other people struggled a little bit. I mean, snow was challenging at NBC and AK, but that's 
that's real, right? That's backcountry snowboarding. You're you've got seven days to go and do this thing. How how are the riders going to do it? How are the crew going to do it? And it was a very collaborative process. I think that was one of the coolest things this season was just working collectively, everyone together to figure out like what is the best look for this event for snowboarding for everyone involved, you know, which is really hard to do in a more traditional format where it's like, all right, the finals are Friday at three in the half pipe. Go. Yeah, that camaraderie really came across. I think you could really you could really see the riders responding to that, like th- through their, you know, the way that they were reacting to the event and the experience of being in the event, like the, the camaraderie, the, the, the being collectively part of it seemed to be a real, a theme that almost emerged more as it went on, you know. Yeah, because as the consequences get, more dire right like in alaska again you know rosman after he he did first run in finals i I don't want to do too many spoilers but the minute he gets to the bottom the first thing he does is get on the radio and call back up to the top and just let everybody know what's going on with the snow and that's that's crew mentality from the backcountry right you want your crew to up level you want everybody to ride their best you want everybody to be safe doesn't matter in this instance that it's a contest and he's probably doing himself a disservice by sharing that info right Sh- out of the gate. Intel. Yeah. Yeah. But, but of course that's what he's going to do. And I, and I hope that stays the same, you know, um, I hope we don't get to a spot where people are up top kind of creedled up in their little crews, um, you know, not sharing that info because the winning means more than up leveling the whole thing. Yeah. Um, Because I definitely get that vibe now. I mean, I haven't done a regular contest since that event in China back in 2016. I swore that that would be the last because it was honestly nightmarish. That we could do a whole podcast on just that trip to China. (laughs) You were there, like it was. I was there for I was there for four days, so I just I just remember it was. Yeah. I was there for a month. Yeah, I didn't envy that. I remember. I, I think. I think I was there for the last four days. I turned up at that hotel and everybody was just zombified. <laughs> everybody was just like, you were like a drowning man. You were like, somebody new. Thank fuck. Come over here. Have dinner. Yeah. You know, it was, it was definitely. Yeah. Anyway, on, on AK, you know, technically that must've been quite challenging as, as, you know, COO event organizer, whatever you want to call it, you know, what, what however you want to name your role, like just, an obvious thing to say but what what was the most challenging part of it from from your point of view to actually deliver that event in the way that you have done um i mean logistically it was a heavy lift right um but it's just a different set of moving parts in some ways it was easier than jackson right jackson is live so a live production for folks who haven't worked one involves building a small community right? Like literally a, a town, a small town in a parking lot for about a hundred people to, to work in on the live production side of things. So you've got catering for all those people. You've got office space and workspace for all those people. You've got bathrooms and power for that whole setup. Like the, the scale of the Jackson event in comparison to BC and AK was you know, easily 5X 
the work and the bodies, right? You know, a call sheet of over a hundred people for that live production. So when you get to Alaska, we're down to, I think it was actually 22 people on the call sheet for Alaska. And that's uh, seven athletes and I'm bad at math sometimes, 15 crew, um, which is a really small team for an event of this scale. And that's, you know, guides, camera people, audio people, and then on the comp side, you know, you've got myself and a few other folks. Um, but really up there, the moving parts were just what vehicles can we use to move people to what location at what time? How long does that take? And how much do those things weigh? So it's it's all just spreadsheets and math at that point. So it's, all right, it takes this long to move this many people with this vehicle from point A to point B. Everyone, you know, everyone's starting at the same point, point A, and you've got four or five different places in the venue that you've got to place folks. So it's just doing manifests and figuring out, all right, we have to take off at this time from here. We've got, well, I think it was four helicopters and two fixed wings. Um, so a fixed wing with five, that's a beaver, a fixed wing with nine, that's the otter. You've got four A stars. Some of them B two, some of them B threes. One with a bench seat, some with that. Like I could, I could ramble on about what it actually took, but, and I don't want to say it was easy, but at that point in the season, you've been staring at the plan long enough that you just execute, right? And the crew up there were really incredible to work with. Travis has obviously been in and out of that location for multiple film projects and has it super dialed. He went up in advance and did a full recce with the crew. And then we had this really long screen share Zoom call going through annotated images with sketches because I had never actually been there, right? This was a bit of a mind fuck for me. Two years ago, I was supposed to go there for a site visit. I dislocated my shoulder, wasn't able to go. They ended up shooting dark matter on that trip. So literally best conditions in a decade trip that I missed. Wasn't able to go. Last year was supposed you've, you've, to go. You've had, a, you've had a good run. I'm not going to feel too too bad yeah. on that one. <laughs> I'll, I'll forever be bummed I missed that trip though. Um, and then last year we were supposed to do a site visit and then everything got shut down due to COVID. And right. then this year there was just no time in the schedule to do a site visit together, myself and Trav. I was up in yeah. BC. He went to AK. He couldn't go to BC because the border was closed. He couldn't be there for the actual AK event because he was having a baby. So he went in advance, sketched everything all out. We did this massive mind meld because um, he and I work really closely together on all this stuff. Like he's the vision. He understands how it works. And then I take all the bits and pieces, work with the team and figure out how to ex actually execute on that vision. Um, so by the time I showed up at TML, it was really just, all right, what day are we doing this thing? Um, there was a little bit of a monkey wrench, like the, the site that we had planned to do the finals, the snow conditions just didn't really work out the way we wanted them to. So we ended up having to find, instead of one venue where we could do semis and finals, as you saw in the show, we did two separate venues, one for semis, one for finals. Um, Chris Rosman was a huge help to me on, on that day. We, we ended up flying in early scouting around trying to find some new venues that were still holding good snow because it hadn't hadn't snowed in weeks right it was 
the pendulum in Alaska kind of swings back and forth to extremes. You know, you could be there for two weeks, never see the sun and it would snow every day. And you just be, you know, you hear these nightmare stories of people stuck in Alaska going absolutely stir crazy. Um, we got it on the other end, like it hadn't snowed in weeks. It was bluebird and cold. The good thing is it stayed cold. Right. Um, so we found some decent snow and, and did, as you saw on the show, semis in one zone, which was super cool on Montrachet and then finals on DFC. Um, but we, we, you know, we had to kind of rewrite those plans on the fly. Um, but with such an experienced crew of guides and, and riders and filmers and photographers, it, I think it looked pretty seamless. You probably wouldn't have, wouldn't know that that wasn't the plan if you didn't know. Yeah. Say. Yeah. Um, I, I just watched it and I certainly that didn't come across. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look pretty seamless. Um, yeah. But I mean, there's, there's just so much terrain up there and different aspects and elevations and parts of the tenure are, are holding different snow at different times of the year. And you just, you go in with a plan, but then the flexibility to, to pivot, you know, to, to use an overused word for this entire year, it's, it's been all about the pivot. But I think if you've got a committed crew who are passionate about something, they're going to put every ounce of effort possible into making it a success. So. On on the relationship with you and Travis, are the times when you're overfaced by his ambitions for these things? Or, or is it generally you're like, yeah, we can do that? Oh, all the time. I mean, he he pushes people myself included to like the absolute pinnacle of their performance, right? Like what is the most we can get out of this day or this place or this thing on, on and, that? Just, just, just before you get into that answer, his commentary is hilarious because he's, he's so pitiless with the commentary. He's, you know, it's like, yeah, you can really get the sense of, of like his approach to the mountains, like his standards is fairness as well because it's all fair you know what i'm saying like it's yeah. really it's really insightful it's really interesting but he certainly call, calls it how he sees it you know yeah, which, which, made, which, which made me think like yeah that's quite a revealing insight mm -hmm. um so yeah and the but the thing is with trav and this this is almost like a a little jake anecdote like jake always said listen to the riders right um because even if you don't think they're right now, they'll be right in the future because they're the ones driving the thing. And it's going to go where they say it's going to go because they're the ones who are going to take it there, right? And, and Trav is that ultimate visionary. And to the point where for sure it drives me crazy at certain points. Like I'll have a plan, I'm ready to execute it. And then he wants to add one more thing. We're going we're gonna to add this one more thing. And that thing quite often, almost always, ends up being the best thing. And it comes in at the last minute and it's a massive logistics lift and it's a total nightmare and people are like crushing themselves to make it happen. But then it happens and it works and it's the best fucking thing. And he was right. And he's very rarely wrong. And because of that, you're motivated to just go and, do the damn thing, whatever that thing is, right? It's sometimes it's as simple as like, I, I have this really distinct memory of being in Seattle on the depth perception tour. Cause I've done a bunch of the movie tour stuff with travel over the years too. 
and we've got this jam-packed schedule and then we've got to get across the border up to vancouver from seattle so international border crossing another show the next day and he wants to go to this escape room (laughs) and i'm just like dude like how why how like how are we gonna fit this (laughs) into the schedule so we end up, we go to the escape room. It's, it's, a, it's a grand time. It's this perfect vent. We're all, we've all been on tour for ages. We're totally burnt out. It's this perfect release of energy. We all have a hoot. And then we get in and drive to Vancouver and it's great. Um, you know, or like the arch in Jackson, that, that big portal at the top of the course. That thing went from a text message to reality in 10 days. And the dude who designed it was in Costa Rica and the people who built it were in San Francisco. And it was, you know, he texts this photo to me and Rick Ross, who who helped me out with all operation stuff at Jackson of this, this artist, Carrie, who had done this portal at Burning Man and Trav wants this arch at, at the top of the, at the top of the course in Jackson. And, Long story long, we end up, it all worked out. It was fine. It was a, a huge heavy lift and a massive snowstorm and everything else. But it looked so fucking cool. And he was right. Yeah. Like it really added this like gateway to another dimension of snowboarding. You know, like it became super iconic and we'll use it in the future. And it was totally worth all the effort. But at the time, I'm like, seriously? Like I'm looking at my logistics schedule trying to figure out like, how do I fit yeah. these two extra, two extra people? two more passes, two more hotel rooms, like transportation from San Francisco in the middle of a massive blizzard, like multi-day drive. The thing shows up late. Like, but at the end of the day, none of that matters because it worked and it was awesome and he was right. So that's where it's a really fun challenge to work with him on that stuff because, because he's right. He's, he's, pushing the limits of what we can do and he always wants it to be better and he's the you know the best critic for all the right reasons i mean you've been fortunate enough to work you know you mentioned jake essentially because your your career as you mentioned you worked for burton for years which is when we met originally back in the day um Mm -hmm. but you've been lucky enough to work with like two of like the absolute visionaries of, of the culture really with jake and travis yeah, and and I didn't work super closely with Jake, but I mean he he trusted me and you know the marketing department and the and the events team with at, at first it was the US Open, right? That was the first event I worked on being based in Vermont and then eventually the whole Burton Global Open series and Jake was really into sport, right? Like he had season's tickets to the to the Giants and the Celtics. And that was like a thing around the office if you know, like they did a lottery all the time for you know, you could you could get those courtside seats. So you had two two courtside and four behind the bench for the Celtics, and that was like a thing. If he couldn't go, he would just give those away. Um, but because he was so into sport and competition, he wanted Burton as a brand to be at the forefront of like what snowboard events could be. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't just the U.S. Open. There was European Open, Nippon Open. Canadian Open, New Zealand, Australia, like at the peak of it, we had six of them. Um, and it was its own proper series with points and a payout and it was part of the TTR, which is a whole other tangent that we could go down to go down if you want to. Um, but also like the Abominable Snow Jam. I think that was 
talking about like creative formats. Like that was an invitational event at Hood in the summer, pipe, slope, and quarter pipe. And all the riders were invited to all three events and had to ride all three events. So you had pipe riders riding slope style. You had slope style riders riding half pipe and quarter pipe. Like you had really interesting, we had, it was all about the overall there, right? You had cars and motorcycles and Rolexes and MacBook Pros and Sony HDV cams. Like it was all about the stuff. It wasn't so much about the, the money, although there was decent prize money too. But that, that event was super fun because they were all jam formats and everybody rode everything. So we just had, you know, a seven day window to do three events and it'd be like, all right, weather's good for this one on this day. Let's go. Or we'll all just rock up and ride it and it'll be fun. Um, and that, that allowed for some really cool stuff. I, I saw a couple of photos from in Danny Cass's thing. You've been watching those, a microdose yeah, that Absinthe yeah. is doing? Yeah, yeah they posted yeah. a photo from the from the pipe at Hood the other day. I was like, yeah, those those events were really yeah, they were fun. fun. I ended up at one of them one year, and it yeah. was it was yeah, it was it was rad. It was super fun. Like you know, like you say, just a, a jam. Like everybody stoked. Classic sort of summer vibe, wasn't it? It was yeah, great, but really good snowboarding. Like some of the oh, yeah. stuff that went I think down. Nick, I think I think Nico won the year I was there. Like certainly yeah. on the, the the quarter pipe, maybe. Yeah, and it was. Yeah, it was again just just a pleasure to watch, really. Well, that, so how... that's one where you just like you just sort of remove all the rules and let people snowboard, and yeah, they do really cool shit. Yeah, exactly. Let them get on with it. They know what they're doing. Yeah. So the you know the, the the obvious question then. So how the fuck did you get into all this? Oh, so I guess the to back it all the way up. Um, so I grew up in Newfoundland. Uh, for people. Google it. Look it up on a map. It's the far east coast of Canada. It's got a half Ship, hour, half hour news. time zone. Yeah, shipping news. Yeah. Um. So yeah, here here in Vermont, it's what? Let's say it's two o'clock for easy math. It's three thirty in Newfoundland. That was always right. a, jo- a joke. So ha- ha- half. Wow, I didn't even know that was a thing. Half yeah, it time is. Zones. Yeah, half time zones for islands usually. Um, really, I didn't know that. Right. Yeah. So instead of dividing the island into two two time zones, they just split the difference and call it a half hour. Um, but yeah, growing up snowboarding in Newfoundland, I I knew the Burton rep. I helped him out a little bit with demos and stuff. And then the year I graduated high school, the, that winter of ninety three ninety four, the Burton team came to Newfoundland. That was like the first time I'd ever seen pro snowboarders. In real life, I'd seen a couple like East Coast pros, like Seth Neary and Seth Miller, and uh, Mark Fawcett had come to like my home mountain a couple times. But this was this was the Burton team. This is like Brian Agucci, Jim Rippy. They were there with Vianney Tucson. Like the, the classic Burton team. Yeah, the classic early nineties lineup. Right, like Sabu that era. Yeah, well. exactly. Uh, Trevor yeah, yeah. Andrew was with them. Like he was a kid from the East Coast, you know, like at that time. Um, but it was the first time I'd ever seen like real legit pro snowboarders in real life. They were on next year's product the year before, which again, like this is pre-internet and everything. Like you had never seen next year's stuff the year before. It was the year they had the first slap ratchets, right? So they went from like the scissor strap, like the old school to the click, click, click that we all know now. I was like, like literally like what the fuck like futuristic (laughs) shit right yeah and 
It was also the first time that I saw something happen with my own eyes that I later saw in a video and in a magazine and in a catalog. So it was this huge like Wizard of Oz kind of moment where you're like, oh, okay, now I get it. Like they have all this stuff the year before and then the next year it shows up in the catalogs and the videos. And like, it was just this real aha moment where I was like, I, I, want, a, I want a piece of that now that I know how it, how it all works. So, I graduated, I go to university in Halifax. I'm working in a shop in university, skate, snow, surf shop. Um, I end up putting university on hold because a management position comes up at the shop. I'm still in touch with the Burton rep. He leaves to go do some other stuff. Uh, I apply for his job. I don't get it, but the guy who gets it ends up hiring me as his tech rep because I know the territory. I work for him for a season. He gets promoted to national sales manager, moves to Vermont. I take over the territory for Burton. So at this point, I'm 21 and I'm the managing rep for Atlantic Canada. So everything east to Quebec. I do that job for a couple of years, working in sales, doing demos, doing marketing. I end up at the summer sales meeting at Whistler, right? Like, you know, the summer sales meetings used to always be in cool places where you could go snowboarding in the summer like New Zealand, Argentina, Chile, Hood, Whistler. So we're at Whistler. We're doing these marketing presentations on like regional marketing strategies. And I, as the, the, the young kid, give this presentation on all this stuff that I've been doing in my territory. And at the end of it, one of the reps, I think it was Chris Copley actually, came to me and was like, your, your ideas and your talent are being completely wasted up in this tiny little territory in Eastern Canada where, like, even if you doubled or tripled the size of your zone, it would never amount to anything. Like, they need you in, in Vermont. And ended up talking to Dave Schreiber, who was the VP of marketing at the time. They offered me a position in Burlington. I moved down here in 2001, I guess. And then started working in the, it was events and PR at the time. Um, ah, right. Okay. That's the route in. Yeah. This is a few years before we met. I didn't realize all that. Yeah. And did you, so, so when, you know, when you go back to like the university Halifax days, were you like organizing events? Like, again, a stupid question, really, but I, yeah, because yeah, small... you're like super, super into your music as well, right? So I'm guessing that we were you organizing like parties. Was that just a thing that you did? Like... Yeah, that was just the thing. I had, I had a lot of friends who were promoters. I was, I was like straight up in the rave scene in Halifax in the 90s, right? Um, and that was part of, like Gravis and analog were like a big thing and DJing was a big thing. And I was DJing and I would like have my turntables and stuff set up at the mountain, you know, at a demo, like turning screws and playing records. Like it was, it was very real back then. Cause I was, I was very young for a rep. Like I remember going to sales meetings and people being like, well, who do you work for? And I'm like, well, no, I'm, I'm the territory rep for where, and it was, you know, a small zone, not like a big deal. Like, like one of the west coast territories but i think because i was just a little more plugged in and part of the demographic that i was yeah. selling to versus like the old guard of of burton reps at the time who you know had people who were my age working for them uh who are a little more in touch and they just saw that like oh yeah this guy's you know he's got his own sponsors for his regional demo demo tour and is doing after parties and is doing more regionally than most people are 
doing nationally. So let's, let's tap a little bit of that and bring it in house. And um, so, yeah, it was, it was a foot in the door and I got, I got right, to work right. with some. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a cool move because sales wasn't really my jam. You know, I, I, I didn't know having, about the sales part. That's why I'm, that's why I'm kind of interested because um, you know, it's always interesting hearing how people get these ways into the industry. And I, I, I had no idea for some reason. I just thought, that it had always been events and the marketing side of things, but right. No, so. I mean, when you're the managing rep, you're doing all the marketing in your territory, right? Like you're working yeah, with your shops, yeah. you're doing your own local demos. Yeah, um, you like build you, it. You're, you're building the whole scene, right? And that was, I think, why the folks in Burlington tapped me is like I was like about that snowboarding scene, you know? And yeah, um, I, I think a lot of it had to do with like the growth of the music scene with analog and with Gravis and some of the stuff that I was doing with those brands. And like we had an energy drink deal with uh, this brand guru out of Montreal. that was like really in the party scene. And yeah, it was, it was good times. I did fall asleep at the wheel my first year. Like literally though, it was just partying too much and wrecked right. my whole rig. So. Ouch. Yeah. 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 Well, you got to learn those lessons. Learn them, learn them early. Yeah. Get, get them, get them done. So, and then, so when you, was it, was it straight onto the, uh, the events when you got to Burton then? Yeah. Right into events. I remember Dave Schreiber, who was VP of marketing at the time, brilliant mind in, in the sport. You know, he was like, well, you DJ, so you should be able to handle like all the TV production. Right. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, I guess it is. You know, it's, it's AV, right? It's there's a bunch of chords involved, you know? So some of the early stuff was, um, you know, figuring out like how, how a jumbotron worked, how a live production worked. Like we, we did some really cool stuff with, you know, web live before web live was even really a thing, you know, like, um, I remember running cat five cable to all the cameras like, cause we, we were basically running all the cameras over IP so that we could do webcast on the cheap and easy without, you know, doing it through a truck. You do it through a TriCaster in a, in a trailer. Yeah. Um, I remember, I remember all that. Cause that, that was when me and Phil were doing the Motorola thing. Yep. And it was, so this would be like 2004, 2005, maybe. Yep. But yeah, like, it's quite ahead of its time. A lot of, a lot of it, when you look back, the, the work you guys were doing and the work that Phil was, was doing like, in yeah, terms when, of when we had that communi- deal with Motorola, you know, we were live from all six locations. Yeah. Um, in the early two thousands with pretty low budget production to be honest. I mean, us open was a big budget. Europe was still pretty big. Japan was okay, but like doing live from New Zealand and Australia and Canada with just, literally running blue cat five cat cat cable all over the place you know and, and running all these switchers and um alex door from raw motion used to be eim like he was a big part of that like yeah, all yeah, scoring yeah. stuff i remember yeah it was it was super fun and we were definitely pushing like all right like it's not tv is not the future web is the future it was all on go to 11 that that website yeah, and I don't think there was many people. There's a few. There's a few people experimenting with it, but that was certainly the 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 best go at it. Like you know, the most innovative thing at the time. I think 
when I look back. Yeah, those those were fun times. And I think, you know, at, at that time, you had a bunch of different snowboard brands that were still doing events, right? Like Vans was still doing events. O'Neill was doing events. I mean, it's a heyday uh, when you look back, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it was. There was almost too many, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, Dutour had multiple stops. X Games had multiple stops. So you had networks, you know, NBC over here with Dutour, ESPN over here with X Games. Um, and then all the endemics like fighting for whatever was left. It was wild. Yeah. So why did you leave in the end? I mean, earlier you used the analogy, you, you kind of said like when, when, you know, the sage analogy, let's just call it that, like being on a path and deciding to do something different. I kind of, you, you almost referred to it, your career in those terms. Was it, was that a part of it? Like you'd done, you'd done the same thing for a while. It was time to, to just do something yeah, I th- different. I think, I think everybody, you know, everybody has an expiration date, right? Like you get to a certain point. I remember going to New Zealand for the seventh summer in a row and being like kind of over it because I like, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like, you just been there and done that. And it's like, yeah. how many, Oh, want to occur again. Here we yeah. are. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's like, and I, I consciously remember, thinking that and then being like, this is wrong. Like you're going to one of the most beautiful places on the planet to go snowboarding and do a snowboard event. But at that time, you know, it was like summer sales meeting, like I said, was always somewhere far off where there was snow. And I think I had done Chile for the sales meeting and then didn't have time to go home in between. So I went to Peru with some friends, then went to New Zealand, then went to Australia, then went to hood. So like, you know, you chase snow, which is the dream, right? Like you chase snow, you find it wherever it is and you go there and you do, you do an event and you hang out with all these incredible people. But at a certain point you're like, man, I didn't have a summer at all. I didn't have a break at all. And I think I was doing about 150,000 miles a year at that point. Um, And, you know, you'd get your 1k badge, which is like, yay, I get some upgrades and bullshit. But it's like, it really means you have no work-life balance anymore. Um, so, so yeah, I was at a certain point, you're just done, right? And it's whether it's you walk away or someone gives you a little nudge and pushes you out the door. And, you know, I started talking, I think I took a solid six months off after I left. And I was talking to Red Bull about a job in Canada because I was like, maybe maybe now is when we move back to Canada. But I I didn't want to live in Toronto, but the sports marketing job was responsible for this snowboard project in BC called Supernatural. And I was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> I know, I know those guys. So I, I ah, right. yeah, so I was talking to Jeff and Jeff was like, yeah, let me introduce you to the guy. So he introduced me to Dave Mateus, who was the project, the events guy at Red Bull, um, Mateus ended up bringing me on. Travis, I knew because he had competed, you know, at the Abominable Snow Jam, at U.S. Open, European Open. Um, so Trav knew who I was. He, he knew I ran big events and had the background. And they had the idea, you know, they had already done the summer build at that point. But it was like, well, how do we actually run a contest? So, you know, so that was my first project as a freelancer when I started Super Good Thing Maker. That was, that's my freelance moniker um so yeah i left burton and the first thing i did was 
was supernatural, which was great. It was exactly like right place, right time, right pivot, you know, like taking all the the background that I had in in on mountain production and taking it to a more challenging environment, which is again like this cool parallel with what the riders are doing. Cause like I, I like to think of myself as a snowboarder, you know, first and foremost. Like yeah. I, it's everything I have I owe to this sport and this culture. And I'm very protective of the core of it. And I feel like I always have been, maybe to a fault at times. Like just wanting it to be right, you know, for the industry and for the riders and not have it be this thing that, you know, the fist is doing. Yeah. Well, we were being polite earlier, weren't we? Yeah. Um, I think when, when we were, uh, when we were touched on these themes, but yeah, I think we've all, we've all got that in common. If we've, if like me and you and a lot of people we've got in common have dedicated our lives to it essentially. I mean, that's, that's the, you do get a bit protective, don't you? You, <laughs> you, you do, it? you do want to make sure it's being steered in the right direction and have a, have an emotional stake in it. Let's put it that way. Cause yeah, I, I mean, I want to stay part of it and I feel like through natural selection, there's, there's still a path forward for more progression and more challenges and more learning. Cause if you're not, if you're not learning at work and you're not challenged, why are you there? And if it's not fun, then why do it? And you know, was that, was this whole season fun? No. Were there magical moments? hundred percent. I mean, I don't know if this came through in the show or not, but in that opening sequence where you see everyone flying out and the moon is coming up, like about, I'm actually like a little emotional about it. Like it was unreal. We're like, we're, we're going to do this thing, you know? And it was wild. Like that morning up on that, up on that peak, watching the sun come up. Cause we had done it the day before was the thing, right? We had, we had tried to go and we couldn't cause the weather just didn't materialize. And you realize like, this is going to happen. Like we're really going to do this. We're going to do a contest in Alaska, you know, like this thing that's been a vision for so long. And then it's, it's actually going to be a real thing. It was wild, man. I really thought that from the uh, the Rasman run as well, like with the you know with the light and that that felt like a real moment as well. You know that for, that first run that he took, it was it, I really looked at that and thought, yeah, you must you must look at that and and be like, yeah, this dude, I was together. tripping. There's yeah. I, I should hit you with an early version of the show before they did the audio mix because we were all mic'd, right? Everybody was mic'd, and I'm just up at the top screaming. Just yeah, like, <laughs> I mean, well, it, it is it is a beautiful shot that, and it is it is a real yeah. And I mean, it, you've and it just the... it sets the tone, right? Like that first yeah. run is so clutch, so yeah, clutch. He, like when killed, when Giggy when Giggy well. did the the front seven first yeah. run at Jackson, it was like fuck, like. Because you only get one of those. Yeah. Right? One person yeah. drops first and puts in that first track. And if they tomahawk down the face, it's just, oh. And he just laced it. And I was so hyped, like literally screaming at the top. Yeah. I mean, you've really answered a question there because one of the questions I was going to ask you is can you enjoy it? Because 
uh, even at the remove that you're at now, you know, like you've, you've accomplished it. Um, but it's, and sometimes you find with people that are high achievers and I'm going to put you in that bracket, whether you like it or not. Um, they don't often enjoy it. Like it's almost like a thing to do. And then when it's done or they enjoy it until it's accomplished, you know what I mean? And then like, and then when it's accomplished, there can be a flatness of like, oh, well, that was that. What's the next thing? You know, which leads to progression, which leads to personal progression because you're always looking for that next thing, but almost like the process is the reward, not the end, not the end product. So it's really nice to hear you talk about those moments where you clearly did have time to actually take it all in and be like, yeah, fucking hell, this is amazing. Yeah. Because that, that, I mean, that's important, isn't it? The other thing I would say as well, and you almost mentioned it, but a thing that's really struck me about your career as well is like everything that you do seems to be a culmination of the previous things that you did. You know what I mean? It always seems to be building upon it, to be moving forward, to be, to be progressing yourself, which is a really admirable thing to watch from the outside. Um, do you make those decisions with that in mind? hundred percent. Yeah. Like when I was joking around with Michael Jagger, who you, you might know, JDK, he's the J and JDK. Um, they they just, Oh, you should talk to him. Um, JDK was, was the, the left brain of Burton in the heyday. They did all the design, all the board graphics, all the video. So Michael Jagger, really visionary marketing mind. Uh, I, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I do. Yeah. I do know who this person is. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. when I was trying to come up with the name for the freelance thing, which ended up being super good thing maker, it was like, you know, just, just have it be what it is. Like, and I was just, you know, bright, like had this word salad of nonsense and that's what it ended up being. Cause it was like, well, it can't be mediocre thing maker. Like you set this bar, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, don't take any on any projects that don't meet at least this super good standard. Um, no, but I, I think like the progression of complexity and all these events, I gotta, I gotta give huge props to Travis and Kurt Morgan for inspiring that. Like this was art of flight as, as a contest, right? Like that was something like, how do we do that? How do you take that much gear that many people and produce that level of snowboard content live, right? That's ultimately the goal. Like how you press record and run art of flight start to finish as it happens, like in a contest, that's ultimately the goal, right? Um, because that, that film and that style of filmmaking, I think inspired a ton of people and showed people snowboarding in a way that it hadn't previously been shown before. Um, but the, you know, the challenge for me as someone who's into events and competition and sport is how do you take that and apply it so that you're showing people, like, here's all the best riders in the world, get them in the one place at the same time on the same slope, and then you can really see who's the best. Because the thing you don't see in video parts, especially now, because there's all these smaller crews on smaller trips and budgets aren't what they, what they were. It's really hard to compare apples and apples, right? Like 
real snow is a great example or or just any of the video parts that are out there like you've got people all over the place with different styles and different crews and different locations and different snow conditions and it's really hard to definitively say who is the best um and i'm not saying that natural selection is is telling you who is the best snowboarder in the world that's not the intent but on that day in those conditions on that slope with those snow you can see who who the best rider is that day. And can you do that live, right? Like, can we do live production in Alaska? I can say after having done like the post-production in Alaska, it's possible to do it live. Like I know what the Jackson infrastructure was. I know what it would take to build that infrastructure in Alaska. Could you do it? Yeah, would it work? Probably. Like. How long will it take us to get there? I don't know yet, right? Like these are the things like, are there folks now, you know, at, at Red Bull or with our sponsors or within the industry who feel like there's enough value in showing this type of snowboarding to the world live that we can bring enough people along who want to see that happen and enable us and work with us to do that, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, we should be proud, man. I mean, you should, like it—it it is what you guys have accomplished. Is I mean, it's it's really amazing, and like, and not just on the 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 production level as you've just outlined, but but on the cultural level. I mean, you've 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 changed the conversation, which is when you you know you you talked about job satisfaction, and like why you're in this and that that's got to feel pretty good right yeah it feels good i I think it's like trav said it's a nudge right it's like we feel things could be a little bit different or better or go in a bit of a different direction let's just enable people to go there by giving them the opportunity to come along for the ride with us and and the riders need to be a huge part of it you know and the industry needs to be a bigger part of it like we had a lot of brands who did come along this year as, as part of this industry alliance thing to support the riders um, on that journey, and and that's great. Like that we've got this non-exclusive, like sort of low low barrier of entry where every rider sponsor can get involved in some way, shape, or form. Um, and then the opposite is we feed all that content back out to them because you know the the content is is resonating with people or at least we hope it is right um and you probably saw that like doing gear profiles and things like that in the show like you don't see that really at most events so it's just a little way of being like yeah like there are brands behind these riders that support them support those brands buy the shit you know like yeah 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 it's it's a real basic concept but that's something that has been missing from a, a lot of snowboard contests so like, how do we bring everybody along and up-level that whole conversation around the sport and inspire more people to get involved and go snowboarding? Maybe this is it. I don't know. Yeah. Do you have a favorite riding moment from, from this year? Being oh, the absolute geek that you are. <laughs> are you talking about me riding or, or watching someone else ride? Well, let's say both. <laughs> let's say both. Because, uh, uh, you, you know, you, you've posted a couple of pictures of runs that you've done, but let's go with it. Let's go with both. Let's from the contest and then from from your from from the contest. One hundred percent, Zoe's final run in Jackson. Yeah, it was rad. It was 
fucking game changing. Like the fact that on a on a victory lap, she dropped in and did the run that she wanted to do. I re- I think really pushed women's backcountry freestyle snowboarding forward. Like like all like big pile of chips all in. Like let's yeah. fucking go. I and that was probably the loudest cheer. Excuse me, out of the out of the riders tent too at the top. Like people just so fired up. Giggy's Giggy seven first run was probably a close second. Yeah, um, just because that ma- that matters so much. It's a, such a huge weight off everyone's shoulders when you see someone stomp a trick like that first try, first track. Um, I mean, I remember, I remember Lego doing it at Supernatural. Like you remember the first drops always, um, and when Lego did a back seven on the big jump at bald face for supernatural and stomped it. And then like the next six, like, cause that jump, if you recall, was pretty big, right? Yeah, it it had huge. built that big cat built with a pow landing. And it was all like a question, like, is the speed going to be good? Yeah. And then once he stomped that the next six guys, I think all stomped, like the landing looked like a barcode, you know, it was just, yeah. and that's, you know, that's true of backcountry sessions too. Like you get a Rochambeau and the guy who wins the Rochambeau drops in and just hot tubs the landing. The whole session is like, wah, wah, sad trombone, <laughs> right? So, um, and then for me, uh, I, I rode DFC top to bottom after the last rider dropped. And I think that's probably the photo you're referencing. Yeah. Um, Do you go right? Did you go right is right? Ski is right? No, I kind of took Mickle's line. I was talking to Mickle and Ben at the top, right? Like in between runs, like just trying to get beta on. Because I'm up there all day standing around yeah. watching these guys ride. And yeah, you got good intel. There's no, and there's no way at the end of the day you're getting in a helicopter and riding back down to the bottom with all your gear, right? Like you got to ride it. And yeah. Yeah, I've got another photo that Blotto took up top of a pow turn that was very memorable, almost stick in my head. But the the thing, like, it's really hard to capture how big that face is and how long it is. And I know, like, in the show, they're talking about how, you know, Mickle's riding switch because his back leg is tired. Like, just riding that thing top to bottom clean, a lot of work, man. Yeah, like, no, I, it really, it really, it, it did come across, I think, because I remember watching one of Zoe's runs and being like, I think it might even be the third run. And when I was starting to get familiar with the face, being like shit she's only halfway down right <laughs> you know like and she's she's got a long way to go here yeah you, re- you could i mentioned earlier but even that simple thing was was really revealing i thought well yeah snowboarding is hard yeah right? it's tiring <laughs> yeah especially down and, that thing and yeah i think like watching people i heard that from jackson too like watching people fall and watching people struggle it's like oh it normalizes and humanizes it a little bit like oh yeah it's not like because when someone falls in pipe or slope style you're just kind of like oh bummer right like you don't you don't you almost expect them to land everything because that's what the standard is yeah yeah what was the most challenging part of this year covid yeah i mean it's because nobody really knows like how many press releases and government documents and border challenges and getting all the Europeans into the U S and 
getting the Canadians into the U.S. and then quarantining for two weeks in Canada between Jackson and Ballface and all the testing and all the, like, just the stuff that nobody sees. Holy shit. Like, what a nightmare. But yeah, either through luck or through good planning, we had one crew member test positive prior to even arriving in Jackson, right? We had pre-arrival testing and then arrival testing for all the events. And so if you tested positive before, you just didn't come. And then if you tested positive on site, then you got quarantined. Um, so nobody, save for that one person, tested positive before. Nobody tested positive on site. And then post-event testing for anybody who was traveling, nobody tested positive. Um, and then when the Alaska event was done, this was totally random, but AK was way ahead of it with vaccines and the hotel we were staying at happened to be the vaccination site. So like we all went and got vaccinated. <laughs> right. Yeah. There you go. Happy yeah. accident. So, so what's yeah, the, next? Bit of time what, off? No, it's all like recaps now and pitching because, you know, it's, it's, fresh in people's minds it's fresh in our minds for recapping everything tons of key learnings tons of reporting tons of meetings with you know all the partners that we worked with other people that we want to work with like there's this whole whole folder full of ideas that we didn't get to in year one like i don't know if i shared with you some of the the AR and VR and 3D stuff that we were working on for Jackson that ended up not no. not making. I can send you a link, but you know we had full lidar and photogrammetry scans of the entire venue so that there's a full 3D model that's like centimeter accurate of the venue, and the the idea was you know and and eventually we might be able to do this for all of them, um, have it set up so that the riders can practice and course preview with a vr headset on um, wow because you can navigate to any point on the course stand there look around uh, i don't know if you've done any vr stuff but the physics models that exist for them are, are getting really good to where like you can take a, a a snowball or an object or whatever and throw it like you would if you were standing on the lip of a jump and trying to figure out how far it was to the landing and yeah, all I did, the, a I, did, I did a climbing one and it was mad. It actually gave me vertigo. It yeah. Was complete, it was completely bizarre. And I was standing on the floor. <laughs> yep. And it completely tricked my brain. It was, yeah, fascinating. You know, so, there, so there's stuff like that where we want to be able to, not just for the athletes to, to practice and visualize the course, because we did a lot of that. We ended up doing it with drones, right? Like you fly a drone with a GoPro Max on it through the course. And I think for Jackson, we flew 10 different lanes. And then you send all those 360 files to the riders and they can open it up in the GoPro player and, you know, scrub down the line, pause it at any point, look around, but to have that be a more immersive experience and to allow people at home who have access to it. Cause you know, you can just do it on your phone. You move your phone around and it changes your perspective. Um, but yeah, I, th I think VR and AR and creative ways to, give the audience an even more immersive experience than what we're currently doing with the drone stuff. Like that's really just the beginning, I think of where we could take this. Um, and shout out to Gab, Gab 707. He's the only other staff person who was at all three stops. 
Um, he's, he's Canadian, but quarantined both ways. So props to him for doing Jackson, BC and AK and for not missing a shot the entire season. Like I can't stress enough what a monumental achievement it is to have like a pilot who is that good. And he's also a really good snowboarder. Like I think the thing that makes Gab special, cause there's tons of FPV guys out there is that not only, I think Trav told you the whole whale snot story, right? Like he's a PhD genius, right? First and foremost, who can create these non-existent uh, live drones that allow us to do what we've been doing. But he, because he's a really solid snowboarder, he's mind riding with the rider. Like he knows where they're going to go. He can read the body English and just to never blow a shot the entire season. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, yeah. The only I mean, and now you say that it makes a lot of sense. Like, because the, pers- the perspective, yeah, rider's eye perspective in both senses of the word, like the, the actual perspective, but also like having the awareness of what's going on to convey it in the right way. Yeah. Because, yeah, I sort the of thing... took it for granted as well, that actually thinking about it. Well, yeah. I mean, when we originally sent Gab the pole cam footage from depth perception, right? That Brian Fox run through the trees, which was Travis with a pole cam. We were like, we want the drone to look like this, like a third person shooter, immersive video game experience. And Gab was like, yeah, I can do that. But that consistency is really, really difficult. Right. Um, And the only run we didn't get the entire year. If you watch the show, you'll notice this. Um, Ben Ferguson was the first rider to drop for semis. And in just the heat of it all, I was so fired up and in my own head that I forgot to wait for Gab. And I dropped Ferg before Gab was even in the air. So that's the one run the entire season. I got to own that because otherwise Gab would have gotten 100% of all the all the runs. It's not bad. It's not a bad failure right that, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But it, but I watch the show and I notice it, you know. Yeah, I'm you'll like, notice it. Yeah. Like, damn it, there's no drone shot of that first round in semis. Yeah. Well, I got to come out next year. I was gutted I couldn't come out. But yeah, I think yeah. I think there's. I mean, that's the other piece, right? We couldn't do any consumer facing stuff. We no. couldn't have. We didn't even have a PA, right? Like there was no on-site announcing no video screen like none of those normal like contest yeah vibes right right? like we actually just discouraged it at jackson people were like where can we watch red bull tv yeah like don't come and try and watch from the fence line because there's nothing to see yeah 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 but there should be right like next year we'll yeah with that factor as well with people actually around fingers crossed yeah It'd be be interesting to see how it develops for sure. Yeah, I'm definitely gonna try and come. Same stuff this year. Yeah, I mean, definitely Jackson BCAK. Um, we've been looking at a couple spots in Europe. We've been looking at a couple spots in Japan. I don't know how long it'll take to online those. I think we're because of COVID, we weren't able to do site visits in Europe and Japan this year, um, just because that travel was not really part of the equation um so it may take us a little longer to online those two new stops than we had anticipated but you know it, it all comes down to time and money 
right? With enough of those two things, you can do anything. Or if you don't have enough time, you just need more money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Hey, thanks, man. That was yeah. really great. Yeah. Great chat. How, Good how, to catch up. How was it? I, I, I like asking people that I've just interviewed how it was. How it was? That was a fun chat. I, 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 I actually got a little emotional there, for, which is, I, I tend to. Um, is that, is getting up, do you cry at films on planes? Oh um, yeah. That was yeah. a whole, that was a whole thing in your chat with Ed. And I was like, oh yeah, that's me. That's me yeah. all day. Yeah. God, we did talk about that, didn't we? Yeah. God, I, I'm getting worse as I get older. Like, um, so, you know, be looking at things online and be like, oh. yeah. <laughs> like, no, I mean that when I did that finals run down DFC, um, I got to the bottom and just collapsed. I was just like, and like Cyrus had to come over and was like, are you okay? And I'm like, I'm just, I'm just spent. done. I'm just fucking spent. spent. Yeah. Like you, events are funny. Like it's, they're kind of like drugs, right? Like it's this. We just on as well. It's just it's just pure adrenaline, isn't it? When you're in your position, it's like you don't. There's no there's no downtime. You're like bed, you know, bed at one, up at five for like fucking weeks. Yeah, constantly. You're, you're, on. The, you're the first one up. You're the last one down. Constantly Every, answering questions, like yeah. fielding. Yeah, it's 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 endless. Like it's. I'm not surprised because it's just by the end of it, you're running on, on adrenaline, aren't you? Really. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, and it's the good thing about Alaska is we got it done pretty quick, right? And then there was, of course, a mad party and everybody got hammered. And then the next day, the riders were just pickled. And I sent the entire crew out for just a free ride day. No backpacks, no work. And got everybody who had a camera or a mic or had worked, got them all out. And just did a full like, you know, ten to six, like solid day of just AK free riding. Wow, was fucking that sounds sweet. rad. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And I went, I went for that too. So it's like, you know, me, T Bird, Gab, Blotto, Scott Barber, Wade Dunstan, wow, like, yeah, like all the filmers, Sean Aaron, and just like riding with eight liter airbag packs, right? Like tiniest little thing and they're all Amazing. used to riding like 50 pound 60 pound bags with tripods and cameras and yeah no camera day is always a good day for yeah. sure yeah, yeah people were hyped and then the next day it's like all right let's get back and shoot some more because we need more footage so there you go that was me and liam hope you enjoyed it been such a privilege having a tiny role in natural selection and watching Liam and Travis and everybody involved in this seismic event at work. And it's also been great having them both agree to come on the show and share their insights. Really, really enjoyed that chat as I always enjoy chatting to Liam. And I do hope I've done one of snowboarding's true unsung heroes, some justice. So housekeeping corner time. And have I mentioned that myself and Owen Tozer have got a book out? Yep, I'm already getting trolled by some listeners for the sheer extent to which I'm harping on about this. But that's the thing about doing creative stuff. There's the making part, which is the fun bit, and there's the selling part, which is the less fun bit. And now I'm on to the selling part. Of course, the quickest way of stopping me going on about this is to buy a copy of the book, which is a great way of supporting what I'm up to. 
especially because the book is really good. I know I'm biased. Um, anyway, if you want to support the project, you can do head on over to my website, www.wearelookingsideways.com, where you'll see a tab that says book. And while you're there, maybe have a read of the blog I just published called Why We Wrote Looking Sideways, Volume 1. That's the thing with the selling part of a creative project. You get a lot of time to think about why you're doing it. And I ended up using those thoughts as the basis for the blog. Be warned, I do chat about the whole getting paid advert thing yet again. If nothing else though, this gives us some decent new entries for the newly invented game of Looking Sideways Bingo. Yes, a listener has actually gone to the trouble of putting together a Looking Sideways Bingo card, which they've sent me and which includes the phrases that I apparently overuse to a ridiculous extent. Like what? Well, I'm looking at it right now. A up, that's on there. All right, that's on there. Thank fuck they've gone. That's on there. There are more. And because it's funny, and because as Dame Edna Everidge says, you should never be afraid to laugh at yourself because you might be missing the joke of the century. I'll probably post this on Instagram over at We Look Sideways at some point soon. On the book tip, it's actually being picked up by loads of press, which is really gratifying. Some funny stuff coming in. Beach Grit did a classic sort of piss-takey, affectionate re review of it, which is great. Just did an interview for Monster Children with my old friend James Joyner, which is brilliant because it was a good chance to chat to James, who I'm also going to get on the show at some point. Sidetracked Magazine are printing an extract and a load of Owen's pictures. I think Wavelength are going to print some stuff. I also had the pleasure of being interviewed as a guest on Hook Magazine's Joining the Dots podcast, which was with the legendary Mike Fordham. And that was a total pleasure. Let me say, Mike's a proper legend of the game and he had a lot of interesting thoughts on the topic. Mike was incidentally, I think he gave me my first ever freelance commission in summer 1997. At the point I'd been doing a lot of work for White Lines for a good few years. I was still only 20 though, I think, or 21 or something. And uh, basically, I got told to call Mike because he was running a magazine called Extreme, I believe it was called at the time, and he needed a writer. So I phoned him from a phone box in Treen in Cornwall, and um, he commissioned me, which was a big moment in my career. Thank you, Mike. Um, in the conversation that we had for the podcast, for Hook's podcast, we got into a bit of a conversation around wokeness. And the weaponizing of that word, which actually gave me a lot of food for thought. Have a listen when that one comes out. Um, that, that'll be coming up again, that theme, because um, I definitely, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting one that. Anyway, I'll be sharing plenty of these stuff, of these press bits even. God, that wasn't very articulate, was it? On the social channels as they come out. All right, that's it for this month. Massive thanks all right, that's it for this week. Massive thanks to Liam for coming on the show and to you for checking it out. Nice one. Mm -hmm.